Several years ago, I had the rare privilege of visiting Havana, Cuba, the delegation from the Diocese of Texas. We met to meet with the Bishop of Cuba, who was the first female primate in the Anglican Communion for all of Latin America. Over the course of the week, we visited their seminary, cathedral, diocesan camps, and churches. We had tea, shared meals, and were welcomed into the homes of their clergy. It was an eye-opening, memorable experience. There was one evening that I'll never forget. We visited a church in the neighborhood on the outskirts of Savannah that made St. Michael's look very, very large. The sanctuary was modest, but the collection of musical instruments at the front of the church was robust, leaving me to wonder about how many musicians this small church could possibly fit into one service. Come to find out the only thing small about that church was the building that contained it. The priest of this community also had three other churches in the area. On Sunday morning, they had multiple services and regularly welcomed several hundred for worship. But those numbers were small compared to the neighborhood crowds that joined for breakfast after the service on Sundays. They gave us a tour of a kitchen that served several hundred every week, and it was the size of a modest apartment-sized kitchen by our standards. I'm sure I do not know how they produced that much food in that small of a space. The priest talked extensively about the vibrancy of the congregation and the ways in which they have made real progress in caring for their neighbors, young and old alike. He also shared with us how much he works the load of several full-time priests by our measure, and how little he is paid. He is not the only one who struggles to make ends meet in their community. And it's no secret that the burden in a communist society falls directly on the backs of her people. Now, I know just enough about the economy in Cuba to know that I don't know enough and that there are people in this room who are much smarter than me and know a lot more. But my point is really a simple one. The resources we have come to rely on as necessary to do ministry, to run a church, or to be in relationship with our neighbors are simply that, learned habits. Likewise, the ways in which we measure success are learned habits. There were many things I treasured about my time with the clergy and people of the Episcopal Church in Cuba, but the thing I hope I will be thinking about for a long time to come are the ways in which they have made so much out of seemingly modest beginnings. They simply did not have the resources we have here, and it did not matter. They had more than enough to get by, enough to flourish, and to inspire wonder and curiosity in their seemingly wealthy neighbors. They were a living testament to the difference between God's metrics and human metrics. The lessons we have this morning are all about the ways in which Jesus' resurrection are a demonstration in scarcity being transformed into abundance. In fact, the entirety of John's gospel seeks to magnify the ways in which Jesus' life, ministry, and death amplify God's abundant love for humanity. This morning, our readings make this point in a deeply personal and human way. Instead of generic references to something that was once scarce being made plentiful, like um, there's a lot of agrarian references, if you'll recall, in the parables, 
We see the ways this morning in which deeply flawed humans are made aware of the very real consequences of God's redemption. Saul, the disciples, and Simon Peter demonstrate what this might look like. And frankly, it's quite dramatic. Now, in what could be mistaken for a flashback, Jesus meets the disciples who have returned to their fishing days on the shore after a long, unsuccessful night. Their nuts have once again come up empty. John paints a picture that is ripe with symbolic meaning. They've returned to the place they used to call home, doing the thing that used to be enough for them, and they've come up short. The way I read the story, it seems they are desperately trying to go back to the way that things used to be, perhaps even to forget the total upheaval that Jesus caused in their lives. I find this location to be painfully familiar and relatable. Whether it's a death, a pandemic, the end of a relationship, a vocational move, or a transition to a new phase in life, we frequently long to return to a time when the world was ordered in a comfortable way, or what we remember as a comfortable way. For the disciples, this post-resurrection location brings with it the added sting of any regret or doubt they might have had about their role in Jesus' crucifixion. Rather than confronting those painful realities, I imagine it was easier to just go back to what they once knew. And it is here, in the midst of their pain, that Jesus meets them. Jesus steps into the midst of these futile attempts and demonstrates once again that who he was and who he is, is all they need. Jesus' spirit of generosity and his ability to once again fill their nets to bursting completely redefines their story. This is the third time in John's gospel that Jesus reappears to the disciples after his crucifixion. Taken together, The scope of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are an acknowledgement of the healing work that needs to be done. We see this even more acutely in the conversation he has with Simon Peter. Simon Peter, if you'll recall, betrayed Jesus in a way that was brutally public and instrumental to Jesus being handed over to be crucified. Of all the disciples, it is not hard to imagine why Simon Peter might have been mired in self-loathing, regret, and shame about what had taken place. With this in mind, it seems all the more remarkable that Jesus chooses to approach Simon Peter and engage in this dialogue. But look again to these words. Jesus does not ask Simon Peter to apologize. Jesus does not ask Simon Peter to account for his words or his actions. Jesus does not ask Simon Peter what he learned from the experience and what he would do differently next time. Personal favorite. Jesus asks Simon Peter if he loves him. And then Jesus asks Simon Peter if he loves him. And then one more time for the people in the back, Jesus asks Simon Peter if he loves him. Simon Peter, arguably the worst disciple of them all, is restored from a position of disgrace and given one of the greatest honors to become the cornerstone of the church. Not because he was worthy, not because he was capable, but because he professed his love for Jesus. Jesus is not worried about our knowledge. 
Jesus is not worried about our many flaws. Jesus is not worried about our fidelity, our doctrinal obedience, our wealth, our performance, our potential, our successes, our failures. Jesus wants to know if we love him. Just to make the point a little more convincingly, recall the conversion story of Saul that we heard in our first lesson from the book of Acts this morning. He was a notorious persecutor of the church and of the followers of Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. He wasn't wasn't just someone who didn't believe in Christianity. He actively sought to persecute the followers of Jesus. And he becomes one of the most memorable evangelists in all of Christianity. Paul didn't simply hold different beliefs than the early Christians. He aggressively worked to persecute those who held different beliefs than him. He is not someone whose company I would have sought out or enjoyed. (laughs) And yet, it is his words, his experience that still gives shape to the power of God's abundant love and mercy all of these years later. Too often, we forget this about Paul and Simon Peter and the disciples and many other biblical examples with whom we are familiar But let me be really, really clear. Those who we imagine are most unredeemable, those who we imagine are not worthy, those whom we cannot find a way to love, those who have committed notorious and public sins, these are the people who fill the pages of Holy Scripture and surround Jesus as the leaders of the early church. So this suggests to me that our earthly conception of worthiness Forgiveness and mercy is far too small for what God has in mind. All of the ways in which you feel unworthy, all of the things for which you cannot imagine God forgiving you, all of the rebuttals as to why you cannot quite place your belief in an omnipotent God, it is concerning to you and to you alone. God sent Jesus to remind us of the most important thing, the love that God has for us and desires that we have for God. After traveling to hell and back with his disciples, Jesus only has one question. Do you love me? Jesus' story is not over. The disciples' story is not over. Jesus' work is not done. And likewise, the disciples' work is far from finished. The God who made the heavens and the earth is far more creative, far more extravagant, far more forgiving and loving and full of mercy than anything we can possibly fathom. So in the season of Easter, when we make this outrageous proclamation that Jesus was resurrected and appeared to the disciples in the flesh, let us be clear about the abundance of God's love and mercy. Amen.